Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to another, yet another special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, It's just always great to hear from so many of you in terms of how you've been enjoying Soul Talk. We've, We've really had some spectacular guests on. I mean, to be honest, every every guest has been amazing. And, you know, my intention is that I don't bring anyone on that I don't respect, enjoy, they're working some way, think they have something important to contribute. And so I think today's episode is going to be uh, fascinating. I'm, I'm curious about it myself, and uh, I have lots of questions, maybe a little different from some of the episodes, and I think it's going to bring a really different angle and look at matters of soulfulness and matters of importance. And so, you know, I met this uh, this this guy uh, at a conference that I'm about to introduce you to at a conference uh, of transformational leaders about a year ago. gave a, a really fascinating talk on consciousness. And you know, what, what what was interesting for me, and then I bumped into him at TED again. What was interesting to me was it wasn't like a spiritual teacher or yogi or not even a scientist or a philosopher, but he was a businessman, you know, talking about consciousness, writing a book on consciousness, which was a trick. But in his talk, he really proceeded to break things down in a way that I thought was was really right on. He wrote an amazing book that I'm kind of delving into now. It's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. Let me repeat, upside-down thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and implications for everyday life. Uh, it's going to be, they, they say it's like Stephen Hawking, The Brief History of Time, with Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. It's going to be an interesting interview, as you can tell. Folks, welcome to Soul Talk Podcast, uh, Mark Gober. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me, Coop. Great to, great to have you on. It's great uh, seeing you at Ted the other day the TED conference in Vancouver and bumping into you, having a nice chat. And yeah, I've been looking forward to having you on. Now for me, you know, as I mentioned, what's really fascinating for me actually is you're not a scientist, you're not a philosopher, you're not like a spiritual teacher, you know, yet uh, you're a business guy who somehow has written a book that's really rigorous and deep on you know, the sort of nature of consciousness. And, you know, for me, in some way, it's kind of spiritual in a certain way, what you've written. And I'm, I just want to start off, and I'm fascinated as to how the hell did that happen? You know, I mean, <laughs> what, what happened? Did you, did you grow up with a, with a, you know, a spiritual parent? Or like, what, 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 was your, what was your part that made you as a business guy, you know, Wall Street, uh, investment banking analyst, write a book called 
begin to upside down thinking, dealing with the nature of consciousness. How does that happen? It was not something that I had ever planned on. I didn't grow up with a very spiritual background. If anything, I was um, was very skeptical of anything that one might call spiritual or religious. That was just not the way my mind worked. And as you said, I, I worked in investment banking in New York. I, I currently work in Silicon Valley where I'm a partner at a strategy firm called Sherpa Technology Group. So my day-to-day is very much in the business world. And it started for me, this, this exploration of consciousness, in around August of 2016. And it was not something I was looking for, but I, I was listening to podcasts. And in particular, I was focusing on business and health podcasts just out of personal interest. I heard a woman on a, on a podcast uh, named Laura Powers who talked about her own abilities to see energies and work with energies. And also she talked about psychic abilities and things that I really had not heard about beyond science fiction. I had never heard a person claim that they had mm. these abilities and experiences personally. Uh, so when I, at the end of that episode, I wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like my world shifted or anything, but Laura mentioned that she has her own podcast, which is called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people that have had similar experiences or other people that explore these topics. So I I was interested enough to say, okay, well, I'll download or I'll subscribe to that podcast and just start listening. And and that podcast, Healing Powers, I ended up listening to um, all the episodes dating back to 2011 within within just a few weeks. So I kind of binge listened to the whole, uh, whole series. And what I found was that there were many people who, who had independent accounts. These were people that were not connected to each other, that were describing a picture of reality that directly conflicted with what I was taught and what I thought to be true. So that led me to then decide to explore further, and I began to read scientific papers. I began to read books. I eventually ended up speaking with many scientists in this field myself. And over the course of about a year, I was just fully immersed in this topic when I wasn't in the office. Because... For me, the way that we view reality directly impacts how we act in the world and how we think about purpose and, and what we do and how we, we are. So here I was hearing about things that were conflicting with my old world view, and I just really wanted to understand it for myself. And that's ultimately what ended up leading to the book. But it started as just a personal exploration, and it still continues uh-huh. to be an exploration. What was your old world reality like? What was the reality in the paradigm that you started from? Now, looking back at that, that paradigm, I, huh. I learned that there is a scientific word for it or a philosophical world. It's known as materialism. And when I say uh. materialism, I don't, I don't mean um, the desire for fancy cars or jewelry. That's not what I mean by materialism. I, I'm talking mm-hmm. about a philosophy in which the universe is, it's just made of material. Like everything can be reduced down to physical matter. And when we think about, you know, at the very beginning, this materialist perspective says there was a big bang about 13.8 billion years ago. It filled the universe with this physical stuff that we call matter and atoms of matter started to interact in this big universe because it's a big universe. And that's what happens through chance. When we have enough pieces of matter interacting with each other, we call those chemical reactions. Chance tells us that we'll end up with a molecule that can replicate itself. So that would be like DNA. So DNA clearly leads to the evolution of human beings in our biological form, and we develop brain, and from the brain comes our consciousness. And I'll just pause on that word for a second. When I say consciousness, I mean 
the subjective experience, the inner experience that we all have, kind of an awareness. Anyone listening to this conversation right now, that which experiences the listening is your consciousness. And so this is a fundamental thing because every single person has a consciousness. It's, It's that which experiences our lives. And the materialist perspective, going back to your question of what is the paradigm, starts with matter and says that matter creates consciousness through a brain. So the brain is what is responsible for producing our own awareness and experience. And the reason that this is so important just from an everyday perspective is that if we believe that's true, that the brain is what's creating our conscious experience, then when the brain dies, in other words, when our physical body dies, then our consciousness is gone. There can't be any memories. There can't be any feeling, right? It's all over. And so this was something that I actually understood very well. And I would think about in the back of my mind when I was in business or I used to be a competitive tennis player and played in college. If I had a really big win or I lost a match, in the back of my mind, I would always think, wait a second, if our consciousness ceases to exist at some point, there's going to be no memory of this event. Why does anything matter? Why does this win matter? Why does this business deal matter? Mm. To me, it was all just a rationalization. If you believe the materialist view that the brain creates consciousness. So that's why challenging this paradigm ended up being so really world changing for me. Gotcha. And so what was the, how would you then define, so that's the materialism, the, the sort of new paradigm that was, I guess that you shifted to, you know, that, that was challenging the materialism, materialism paradigm. What, what was described that new paradigm? Well, the way it started for me was hearing about phenomena that were challenging this view because the materialist view mm-hmm. says that the brain creates consciousness and consciousness is just stuck in our skull. There can't be anything happening in terms of our consciousness beyond our body. And certainly when our physical body turns off, there shouldn't be any consciousness. And it started with hearing of things that challenged that idea. Ultimately, where, where I come out now, at least directionally, and this is what my book is all about, is the idea that instead of saying consciousness comes at the very end of the materialist picture that I drew. So we started with matter. We got consciousness at the end through a brain. That's the materialist perspective. What if we move mm-hmm. consciousness to the very beginning rather than the end and say consciousness is fundamental. And I'll I'll quote a famous physicist named Max Planck. He's a Nobel Prize winner. In 1931, he he summarized this idea. He said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. It's a flip of the paradigm. Mm, Got it. So that's what you mean by the the sort of upside down, the end the upside-down thinking, the end to upside-down thinking, the flipping of that paradigm. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay. Got it. So share a bit more. You mentioned a little bit, but like, why is this important? What are the implications that you see? Well, I guess what were the implications in your life? What, what shifted as this, 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 as this paradigm flipped for you uh, from this materialism paradigm to this sort of consciousness-based paradigm, consciousness-creating materiality paradigm, what did you experience? Did you experience anything different? Any way of seeing the world, purpose, meaning, relationships? Like, what did you experience that was different? And what are the implications for, for, for people, for humanity, for individuals? 
it has shifted things for me massively and continues to shift as I kind of readjust to thinking about reality in a different way. Uh, mm -hmm. I, the way the analogy that I, I use to kind of frame this paradigm, which it comes from a philosopher named Bernardo Castro, he says that we should imagine that all of reality is like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, and each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning we're all made of water. But if we're in a whirlpool, we kind of have a localized individual perspective, even though we're connected. So this is one of the really big implications that I talk about. And most of my book is a science. Right now, we're just talking about the high-level picture. This notion of interconnectivity, even though our eyes show us separation, if we're interconnected as part of the same stream of consciousness, then that has implications for how we think about treating people. So I would say that's number one. Um, number two is thinking about our own capabilities. So if we, if we go back to the whirlpool analogy, let's say some of the water from my whirlpool gets into another person's whirlpool. That's like some of my consciousness entering their consciousness. This model where consciousness is primary predicts that this sort of thing would be possible and it should happen where the consciousness of one person could get into the consciousness of another person. That is like a psychic or a telepathic ability. So this model... Mm predicts that those things actually wouldn't be weird or anomalies. Those actually would be predicted by, by this paradigm. And a lot of what I talk about in the book is, is the evidence for those things. But that's a, if that's true, that psychic abilities are a real thing, even if sometimes they're very subtle, that to me puts a, a new spin on how we think about our own abilities. So that, I would say that's mm. number two. And then uh, major implication number three is if we go back to the whirlpool analogy again, let's say the whirlpool stops being a whirlpool and the water dissolves into the broader stream. That would be like when the physical body dies, the person's consciousness doesn't die. In other words, the water doesn't leave the stream. It just transitions into a new form. So this model would predict that when the physical body dies, consciousness simply transitions rather than consciousness just turns off, which is the materialist view. And, and that one for me was a really shocking uh, idea, because I, I was stuck in this materialist perspective where when we die, it's over, there's no more consciousness. And yet this alternative paradigm mm. is suggesting, wait a second, consciousness would simply just continue on. In your research, as you, because I mean, it sounds like you read a ton of books and did a lot of research, you, you like deep dove into it. Um, I'm curious what you found, what you believe, uh, and but also what, what you found in your research, uh, like in terms of what happens to, so when, when, when we die as a physical body, brain dies, we die, what happens to consciousness now? What did you observe? What did you find? What, was there any overwhelming evidence as to, you know, this is what occurs? Is it past life? I mean, who knows? But what did you find? That, that, did, 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 did the evidence point to something that was a little bit more obvious or, or overwhelming? I mean, what, what did you observe there? What happens to consciousness when we die? I think the best hints we have are, are from a phenomenon known as the near-death experience. And chapter nine of my mm -hmm. book talks all about this idea where, just going back to the brain for a moment, there is this assumption, I think, in, in much of sci the scientific community today, which is that there's complicated chemical stuff that's happening in our skulls right now that is creating the awareness that every single person listening to this conversation has. It's simply a product of those reactions in our brain. Uh, but what I was really shocked to learn is that 
according to very mainstream outlets like Science Magazine, for example. Science Magazine has called this the number two question that remains in all of science. In other words, we don't have any idea how the brain could be doing this, how the brain could be making consciousness, even though we know the brain has some relationship. So mm. if the brain's not making it, as, a, as I'm discussing and many others are, are, that I quote in my book are talking about, then how is the brain related to consciousness? What if the brain is sort of like an antenna receiver or a filtering mechanism where the brain's actually, um, under the antenna analogy, it's sort of like a TV set. When you're watching a show, the reason that the, the, the show appears on your screen is because the television is picking up a signal from outside the set and it's processing it and then you see your show. Let's say someone damages the antenna, takes a hammer to it. All of a sudden, the show is, is scratchy on your screen. But it's not because mm. the signal itself has been damaged. All that has been damaged is the apparatus for processing mm. the signal, the mm. antenna. Okay? So if we, if we adopt an analogy sort of like that, then when the, when the brain turns off in, a, in something like a near-death experience, so this could be in an instance where a person is in, under general anesthesia or they're under cardiac arrest. In other words, their heart stops beating and there's no blood flowing to the brain. Mm. These are situations where the vast majority of, of neuroscientists would say if under those conditions, there shouldn't be a, a lucid consciousness, if any consciousness at all. Um, mm -hmm. But if, if, if the, again, if, if consciousness is sort of like the signal, then when the brain is damaged in that way, the consciousness itself shouldn't cease to function. And that's actually mm -hmm. kind of what we see in the near-death experience where people are under these severe conditions general anesthesia, cardiac arrest, other types of injuries, where they report extremely lucid memories, where they say things were realer than real, uh, clearer and more logical than usual. They talk about often, not everyone reports this. Some people come back, they don't remember anything. Other people come back and, and talk about some of these steps. They hover over their bodies in what's known as an out-of-body experience. Sometimes the things that they see in the room um, are actually reported to be accurate upon being resuscitated when they come in their body. They talk about mm -hmm. being immersed with an unconditional love very often. Sometimes they actually see deceased loved ones or they report seeing mystical entities. They talk about having a life review where their whole life mm -hmm. kind of flashes before them and they relive old events, but not only through their own eyes, but also through the eyes of the people that they impacted and they feel the pain that they inflicted in those past events. Um, often there's a description of a tunnel, and then typically in these cases it's a near-death experience where the person is resuscitated and comes back in the body. Those people report that there was some kind of discussion, if there was an, a being that they spoke with, that they report a discussion of coming back to the body. So we're kind of cut off in terms of what, what happens when we die, because if the near-death experience is not a hallucination, which... I, I spent a bunch of time in the book talking about the scientific reasons why this is probably not a hallucination. We only have a glimpse into what happens because we don't mm -hmm. see what happens like past the tunnel or past uh, many of these events. Mm -hmm. Got it. So we have a glimpse. As of right now, the best we have is a glimpse. And, and so now I'm curious too, if, um, okay, brain is an antenna. Doesn't mean consciousness turns off consciousness being vast, right, is how do we as human beings, if you're listening to this conversation, okay, that's great, but I don't want to have to die or have a near-death experience to sort of 
tap into a deeper dimension of something. How do we as individuals uh, access the deeper dimension of our consciousness beyond the brain that we might not be uh, in touch with right now and so living a little more limited inside of this sort of mind-body mechanism so that we can, whilst alive, um, tap into more of our potential or more of our consciousness so that we can live more of our potential, rather. Does that make sense? I mean, how, how do yeah. we do that? Are there, any, are, are there any processes? Are there any things you've done, you observe? Because I really want people to, to realize, well, okay, we essentially consciousness is where it's at. How do we, how can we actually see the dimensions of our own, of consciousness? I'm glad you asked that because when I speak to people who have had near-death experiences or scientists that, that study it, they all say, you don't have to have a near-death experience to get the learnings. Because when people come back mm. from a near-death experience, they're, they're, much, they're very often changed in a, in a very significant way. So psychiatrists are, are very interested in studying the before and after where a person comes back from the near-death experience and all of a sudden, they're much less materialistic. They care much more about helping others. But in order to get there, they went through a severe trauma where they almost died. And that's not ideal, especially for anyone mm. listening. There must be a better way. And I want to go back to rethinking the brain. I use the antenna analogy, which I think is one as a very general analogy. Another one that I, I often mention is to view the brain as, as a filter of consciousness. In other words, mm -hmm. the brain actually gets in the way. So that's why in a near-death experience, when you to shut the brain off, almost com sometimes completely off or almost fully off, then the person experiences a broader reality that, it, that the brain typically is filtering so that we only see a limited sliver. The brain has been taken out of the way and people experience these other dimensions almost. So how can we do that without almost dying? And this is where yeah. I think practices that can quiet the brain seem to have a similar potential effect even though it might not be as dramatic on day one. Like a near-death experience, if someone gets in an accident, they might go right into these other realms of consciousness. Whereas with, let's say, meditation or breathing techniques or sensory deprivation, these are all ways of quieting the brain and kind of getting the brain out of the way so that it's, it's unlocking the filter, so to speak, so that we can experience this broader reality in a more controlled manner. Although I would say that in many of these cases, it could take, a, a, a dedicated practice to get to the point of really experiencing that. So meditation, breathing. Are there any specific? Uh, I I, oh yeah, I can let me back up. So as you did this research, it's kind of two questions. Uh, I'm curious, what are the specific um, uh, phenomena or things you saw? So you said this woman, I think her name is Laura Powers you know, claiming to be able to, she said she was psychic, I think, you know, uh, mm -hmm. ability to, is that correct? She had psychic abilities? Yes, is correct. what she claimed. And, and so I'm just curious, as you went deeper down this rabbit hole, were there any other things, you know, you hear people, uh, their ability to influence physical matter, you know, you hear people in India, their ability to, I don't know, walk through a wall or, um, Remote viewing was a big one, and I think there's been some studies in the, the uh, certain governments and armies in terms of things like that, knowing the future before it happens, you know, that there's psychic ability, animal communication. I mean, even someone like uh, Cesar Milan, who's quite popular, you know, communicating 
with animals on a different level. And so I'm curious, were there, what was your experience? What did you observe? Were there any other things that maybe I haven't mentioned? Uh, even some things I may have mentioned, I'm curious if you actually saw it, experienced it. And yourself, as you went from, let's say, this materialism paradigm, did you experience an increase in your ability to, did you become more psychic? Did you, I don't know, did you start remote viewing? What, what did you find in your own actual ability that maybe you got freaked out? Shit, I'm putting my hand through a, you know, through a wall. <laughs> I mean, what did you see? Well, I think as I became more, I guess, convinced is the right word, that there was a paradigm shift. For me, that came from looking at, at the scientific evidence. I heard people like Laura Powers and individuals that claimed to have these abilities. But for me, it was things like looking at the U.S. government's work, which has recently been declassified. There was a program where they used psychic spies. They're called remote viewers, people that can huh. see things with their minds that are far away in distance that they've never seen before. And as a researcher, it was really neat for me to be able to just find declassified documents by Googling. And yeah. they say things so like, right, was it a, yeah, go ahead. You're saying that right now, just for those listening, that there are governments, I don't know if you can name the government, which governments, but there are governments that have, that are training, between government agencies, countries that are training psychic spies to remote view. Actually, define what remote viewing is so people know and just clarify if I heard you correctly, that there are governments actually doing that so that those listening can be on the same page. Yeah, it's a pretty shocking thing. It, that, that, yes, what I've found in my research is that governments have been working on this for a long time. And um, again, remote viewing is the ability to perceive something that is far away in both distance or time um, without seeing it with your eyes. So somehow the mind oh. is able to access something that is non-local. And for the, for the purpose of spying, for example, during the Cold War, apparently this was a tactic that was being used. And in my book, in Chapter 4, when I talk about the evidence for remote viewing, I was able to include some of the declassified documents from the CIA uh, from this period in the 70s and 80s where they were working on this. And in fact, the U.S. government spent over $20 million over a 20-year period investing in this uh, ability. And there were people like wow. former U.S. President Jimmy Carter who confirmed that remote viewers were used to find a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle. The radar systems couldn't find it, so they used remote viewers. And he confirmed that they, remote viewers located this downed bomber, even though no one knew where it was. So there are remarkable stories like that. But the documents, I'll just read you a direct quote from an internal document. It says, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. And they show the scientific panel that examined it and the scientific panel's report, again, direct quotes, they say the implications are revolutionary and the evidence is too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining a few people listening right now thinking, hmm, I'd like to be able to remote view to uh, check up on my, you know, my spouse <laughs> in a different <laughs> location. You know, the, the implications of that. So could, like, can anyone, I mean, did, did, did you find that like anyone, because I know there's a lot of people that might not think of themselves as, you know, ooh, psychic or having the ability. And so like, 
do you find, do you think anyone can be trained to, to, to cultivate the ability to remote view or develop intuitive psychic abilities? My perspective on this is that uh, what we might call psychic abilities or these non-local consciousness abilities are things that are innate to all of us. However, there's uh, kind of a distribution of abilities, sort of like in basketball. You have LeBron James uh-huh. or Michael Jordan as kind of the superstars. Those might be the people that are, were in the U.S. government program, the best of the best, who have been are not only uh, naturally talented for some reason, maybe their brain is set up in a certain way to receive the signal better, but they're also training at it. And then maybe on the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you have people that are just can dribble a basketball, but they can't do much more. So I think there is this range of abilities. And it's a great question you asked, and it's one that I've explored myself. I have my own podcast that will be coming out, likely in the summer of 2019, where I've interviewed many of the scientists who study these phenomena, including a man named Russell Targ, who was a laser physicist who ran the U.S. government's uh, remote viewing psychic spying program out of the Stanford Research Institute. And for him, by the way, these abilities are, are so obviously real. To, to say that they're not real is, is like ludicrous for someone who's been in this situation. It's really interesting to hear him. But he, he has trained many people in this ability. And he says a- anyone can do this. It's a matter of quieting our minds, what some people might call the monkey mind. It's, it's a very meditative exercise. And then you kind of allow things to pop into your awareness. And he says that anyone can do this, although my, my guess is that some people might be more naturally talented than others. Got it. Then, and I think going back to one of my questions was, did you see any specific abilities for yourself open up as you shifted your paradigm? I have not, I have not been to a remote viewing course and I haven't spent too much time trying to harness the abilities in that way. Uh, Like for the U S government, there were very specific, uh, targets that people were trying to identify at a remote location. Or for even, me, it's been more. Or even, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, it's for me. It's been more about like cultivating intuition in just daily living. Yes, and and mm. that's where I've. I guess the best way to describe it is I definitely feel like I've become more intuitive, and for me, it occurs more as a knowing. <sighs> that's not really mm. tangible. I can't really explain to you all the steps that are required for me to feel like I have this knowing but just kind of knowing that this is the right decision or I should do this right now. It almost pops in. And as I've kind of studied this more and more and studied my own behavior and these insights, I've begun to calibrate a bit better where when some information comes into my awareness, I seem to be better able to uh, notice if that's just kind of imagination or if it's an actual knowing to do something. And so I think the answer is, I, I think that by becoming aware of this broader reality, in my experience, it really opened me up where synchronicities started to happen much more often, where there were coincidences that were just, if I ran the math, which is my instinct to do, they were so improbable that it seemed like there was some kind of interconnectedness happening, that those started to happen more, and my sense of knowing seemed to increase naturally just by being exposed to this information. Gotcha. And so in terms of, you talked about knowing, I think it's a really important thing that, yeah, I mean, I find it like there's not always this formula for, okay, this is how you know, you know, this is how you access your intuition. But I think it's right. There, there is a calibration for a sense of the quality of knowing. And so 
for you, because I think there's a lot of people listening in that might might also have the question for themselves. For you, when you have a sense of knowing that it's just beyond your mind, just spewing some stuff out, uh, and you sense, no, no, this is I need to pay attention to this, or this is something deeper that that I need to listen to or act on. How how do you distinguish? How do you distinguish the difference between just something your mind is telling you, or or just a random fear or emotion versus hmm, this is a knowing? Is, is it a, a sense, a quality? A, how, how, for those listening, in, how how might they distinguish? What I found is that it, it, it can, for each person, we have our own structure of a brain and we have our own personalities. So it might manifest differently mm-hmm. for each person. For me, it was, it's, it's still a process of, of kind of having ideas about things that appear in my consciousness and having to decipher. So there is a bit of trial and error of just if an idea mm-hmm. comes in, following it and see what the quality is of that idea and then see if it ended up being correct or on the right track. What I found personally, though, is that there it's it's kind of a feeling that is calm and very confident. That's mm. probably the best way I can describe it, where it comes in and there's just no question that, yeah, this is the thing I should be doing right now. I should be making a left instead of a right. I'm not sure why. I couldn't tell you the steps logically as to why I got there, but that just feels right to me. Mm. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I, I definitely, definitely agree. There's a, sometimes it's a subtle feeling, it's a subtle sense of, that's just unexplainable. Um, that's just the under, underlying, you know, underneath all the thoughts. And so, so you made this shift, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, because um, when I met you, you know, I mean, you didn't strike me as the sort of, you know, new age or spiritual, you know, guy who was, you know, you, you, did, you, came, you did come across as just, like I loved your talk. It was to the point. It was it was it was well thought out, mapped out, and you know, as we said earlier, you, you're a business guy, and so um, coming from one paradigm, you know, the sort of mainstream materialism paradigm. I think so often as human beings, we are afraid to let go of the known. We're afraid to let go of a viewpoint, and the viewpoint, you know, for those listening, could be a relationship or a religion or, you know, a diet or anything that maybe they've been living as a paradigm or as a reality that may not be working as well anymore. And so for you in this case, it was moving from materialism to a whole, a whole new paradigm. And so I think many times we're afraid to shift. We're afraid to open to perhaps something more out of comfort, out of fear, out of the fear of, you know, being ridiculed or what will people think and and so I'm curious what gave you the courage I mean I know you did research but still I think it's pretty courageous to shift to be willing to shift your paradigm you know to question you know hey could mainstream science and one paradigm be so off you know and so I'm curious what what were you afraid to let go was was, was how did you access the courage to, to let go of an old, of an old paradigm and uh, embrace a new one? It was a big challenge for me, and it was extremely disorienting. You're talking to me now where I'm mm-hmm. kind of removed from that initial stage of disorientation, but it was difficult mm-hmm. because I was being confronted with evidence that directly challenged what I thought to be true. And the reason that I was able to move forward with it is that 
I, I guess I've been trained academically and professionally to think about things in a logical way, to take in evidence and then to, re to base my conclusions on evidence. And what happened was I got to the point where there was so much evidence, and we haven't even spoken about the, the multitude of peer-reviewed scientific journal papers. I mean, there's real science behind this where I couldn't just dismiss it. So I didn't really feel like I had a choice if I wanted to be intellectually mm -hmm. honest. And because of that, um, I, it was, I mean, I remember it was Thanksgiving of 2016, and I decided to spend that time by myself instead of spending time with family. I went into Muir Woods. Uh, I live in the Bay Area mm -hmm. because I needed to just be by myself to say, wait a second, if this is, if there really is a paradigm shift in order, it's certainly not the one that I was taught in school or, and it's not the people that it's not, it's not the paradigm that people around me in the business world are thinking about, then I'm going to be thinking about the world very differently than those around me. And how, how am I going to function like that? So um, mm -hmm. over time, it became easier for me to kind of integrate. And what I tried to do with the book and the reason that I'm speaking about these topics publicly is to hopefully make that transition uh, smoother for those who are interested because when you have all the evidence in one place and you kind of see the logic behind it, it, it might expedite mm -hmm. the process and there might be perhaps a more of a community of people that can point to similar evidence for it. Uh, but you're reminding me in your question of a friend of mine, well-educated mm -hmm. uh, doctor, who when I told about some of this evidence, he said, Mark, I, I have a feeling that you're right about this based on the evidence mm -hmm. that you're talking about, but my life's pretty good where it is and I don't want to mess <laughs> So he so he, he said he didn't want to, he didn't even want to go there. And my response was, well, of course, it's, it's everyone's choice to do what they want. My personal perspective is that reality is what it is, whether we like it or not, whether we want to hide from it or not. And for me, at least coming to grips with what reality is um, will help us deal with the world in a better way. Because if we ignore reality, then at some point reality is going to come around to rock us in a way that we might not, might not like. We can only hide from it for so long. So I've had this compulsion to really try to understand reality as it is. Mm. Is there anything else you would say to that person or maybe you know, someone listening in who's, wow, that paradigm, that's rocking my paradigm. I mean, my life's pretty good. Let me just, let me just stay the way I am. I mean, what else would you say to this person to maybe facilitate them being more willing or receptive or more open to shifting out of the old paradigm of materialism? Well, like if we go back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, the implications of materialism, it is kind of a, we, a bleak worldview. And I'm, I'm not saying that yeah. to be critical of materialism. I'm just saying it objectively. If the brain creates consciousness, there's no consciousness beyond physical death. And therefore, life... Mm -hmm has meaning only to the extent that we rationalize it while we're living. And so that is a bleak perspective. So actually what I'm speaking about here is a really comforting picture of reality. And the fact that it's so comforting is one of the reasons I, I think I was resistant to it because I said, wait a second, how it's, it's too convenient for reality to be this comforting. And I, I think the error that I was making, and I noticed this in some of my friends who are really, really bright people, there's this tendency to say, if it's comforting, there must be some gimmick. It must not be true. But that perspective discounts the possibility that something could be both comforting and true at the same time. And to me, that's what the evidence points to. Gotcha. When you uh, 
went through the process of, of, let's say, questioning and research and challenging assumptions. Because I think we all have assumptions in our lives about multitude of topics. Um, health, relationships, money, you know, you just name it. And so as a researcher in this sense, uh, I'd love to know and hear what are the most important questions that you asked yourself, but also what are the most important questions that you asked yourself now and what are the most important questions or some of the most important questions that the listeners can just ask themselves almost as a, as a practice to... Uh, to, to, to turn their lives up, to turn their lives upside down on a uh, daily or monthly or yearly basis, so that they can keep, I think, reinventing and living more authentically, so they don't get stuck in, you know, old ways of being, old ways of seeing, uh, in general. So I think it, to me, comes down to the question of identity, <clears throat> and if we adopt the uh, materialist view of identity then our identity is our, bo- our physical body, our material body, and consciousness just comes out of that material body. But our identity is our body. Under this alternative paradigm, our identity is tied to our consciousness, and the body is the vehicle through which it experiences a physical world. But consciousness is the identity. So let's, let's think about that for a second. If our identity is our consciousness, it's that which is experiencing the body. So when I say I am Mark, that I is referring to the experiencer of the body mark, the mind mark. It's all within that I consciousness. If that's my identity, think about the process of birth and death. When we're born, we don't bring anything with us, excuse me, that's physical into the world. But when we leave the body, according to this idea that consciousness continues, we also don't bring anything with us physically. The only thing that is brought is our consciousness and the ways in which it has evolved. And this is one of the themes that emerges in my research in many different areas, that that the purpose of this physical world seems to be related to the way in which we are evolving ourselves. So what does that actually mean, evolving our consciousness? I think we do have some hints if we go back to the the near-death experience. Um, I mentioned the life review. Again, the life review is this instance where a person is reliving his or her life in a flash. Again, when their brain is, is off or almost completely off. So what, what people report is that this is a very real thing. And I, I spoke with a man named Danian Brinkley. This is also for my yes. uh, forthcoming podcast. I know Danian. I met Danian. Yep. He's amazing. So when I spoke to him, I knew about, that he had had three near-death experiences each time he had a life review. What I didn't know is that he was just coming off of a recovery of a fourth near-death experience that he had earlier this year. Wow. Um, so he has been through this process many times. And, and for wow. him, he had a life, review, a life review every single time where he started from the beginning of his life and then went all the way up to the, the most where he was at that period. So he, had, he saw the incremental periods each time, but there were certain parts that he had to relive four times over again. And for someone like him, he, he fought in Vietnam. He told me that he was vicious in combat and he killed many people. So in his life mm. review, he experienced the deaths of the people that he killed. He felt the pain that they were experiencing, but he also felt the pain of the child who no longer had a father because Daniel had killed the father in combat. So for him, mm. this was a, it was a life-changing experience to, re, to feel that pain. When he came back into his body, his, his priorities shifted. 
He has now helped many people as a hospice worker. Um, so for him, people that have been through a life review, when they talk about evolving our consciousness, it's all about the treatment of not only ourselves, but also others, because there is this interconnectedness. Got it. Got it. Really cool. Really cool. Are there, so uh, back to the questions. Are, are there any questions people can ask themselves on a, on a, a, as a way to evolve, as a way to reflect? Are, are there any important questions that someone listening in can? Yeah, if we, take the, if we take the light, I think it's about, again, going back to what is the nature of reality? What is our identity? Mm-hmm. If our identity is our mm-hmm. consciousness and there is evolving is, is some part of what we're here to do, then that kind of can act as a compass for us to say, are these activities that I'm doing today, tomorrow, are they in some way enabling my own evolution? Even if it seems like a mundane earthly thing, that it could still be enabling evolution. And how, how are my actions impacting b- myself? Because impacting the self is, also, is important, but also those around me. That awareness, I think, of asking ourselves, am I growing? Am I, am I transcending certain blocks that I had? And how am I treating myself, my body, and others? I think that's a very powerful compass. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Questions I, I meditate on kind of the age-old questions also, uh, sort of more in the spiritual direction over the years, you know, just meditating on the questions without even trying to fixate on an answer, just who am I, you know, who am I really, what am I really, you know, uh, where do I exist? And just sort of meditating on that, just where do I, where do I exist, you know, and uh, that's been an interesting meditative uh, question to sit with, you know, what can I know for sure? And really sitting with that question, but yeah, really, really, really awesome. I think the implications are huge in terms of the paradigm shift that you're bringing. And I love that you're bringing this, this scientific rigor to to the process. And uh, what are you, you know, from your background as a business person, being involved with technology, also, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to say spirituality, Mark, but yeah, there is a lot, at least from my perspective, a lot of what you're saying that is the sort of underpinnings of spirituality and the spiritual, you know, evolutionary path uh, that is consciousness based as the foundation. Um, so, what it, as you look at the world, as you look at where we're going, um, again, I, th- I think two questions in one. Where do you see where could you see the evolution of spirituality going? Like with technology, you know, you, you have a background in technology and investment banking. And so with technology, which is also bringing the world together in so many ways, dissolving boundaries. Um, you know, I think with technology as the integration singularity starts happening, I think we're going to start asking ourselves the question, not just you know, who am I as a spiritual being, but, what the hell am I and what does it mean to be human when technology and human beings integrate together? It's like, well, who, who, who am I if I've got this chip inside of me and now we, we have this integration happening? And so I think it's going to get kind of interesting. And so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on where you see the evolution of spirituality going 
and what that looks like. You know, in the olden days, go to the cave, go to India, go to the Himalayas. Who knows with virtual reality and you know, all these technologies where, where it's going to go, brains, chips, and brain, who the hell knows? What do you see? Any, any thoughts, any, any, any intuitions, any, anything you're working on, anything you observe in that realm? Well, I think you're, you're right to use the word spirituality, although it's one that I, I avoid in the book. It's one that I purposely did not use because with, with my background, the word spirituality coming from a, like a materialist <laughs> perspective was kind of a turnoff. So I didn't want to, yeah. uh, I didn't want to, to have people to have a reaction because of the connotations of that word. Although what I'm talking about sort of backs into what many spiritual traditions have been talking about for a long time. Yep. So I totally agree with you. To me, it's all about what is the nature of reality. That's what we're all trying to do, whether it's a scientific, quote-unquote, perspective mm-hmm. or a spiritual one. It's the same goal. And mm-hmm. I, I do think it, it does align with what many spiritual traditions have talked about. And I mentioned this concept, concept of evolution, which seems like it's a big part of the picture. That's where all the research that I've done points. So how, how is our evolving society, this physical realm, including technology, interplaying with that? What I think is that going to a, a mountain and meditating, like we have seen throughout history, some people have done that and they've reached very high states. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's certainly helping one evolve. However, I do think there are challenges that happen in day-to-day life that are almost bypassed by going to a mountain and, and secluding oneself. So I think just being in society and being in relationships of all kinds forces us to confront issues and forces us to evolve in many ways. So I think the, the, the changing nature of the world that we live in and the way that we interact will create new uh, mechanisms of evolution, whether it's technology-enabled or otherwise. To me, that's, it's just kind of a, a changing face uh, for us to grow in new ways. Mm. Nice. nice. But for those who might be, let's say, business folks, like if we have an entrepreneur listening to this conversation, how do you feel, since you're a businessman yourself, how do you feel this new paradigm that we're talking about? What, what any opportunities for them that you can share that may get them excited? Well, we live in a world where money does drive things, and yes, it does. because because we have an economy, there we we've reaped many benefits of technology, and so many aspects of our lives have been improved by business. So, I think just because there is a the reality that I'm speaking of is one that one might call spiritual. I'm not saying that that means we should just get rid of the world. So I, I do think that business and entrepreneurship, these are important things for helping us um, coexist together. What I like to think about now in the business world is what are the ways in which a technology or a business could be contributing to the overall society? So I'm much more attuned to that aspect well, of it. Yeah. So that might be something well, for people to consider, but also just ha- money in like general that. has, has a big potential impact because let's say one is, is earning an income in a certain way that maybe isn't uh, directly related to aiding society relative to other ways, but someone's making a lot of money from that, that money can then be Mm. redirected into other areas. Mm. So Mm. I think it's a matter of Mm. a maybe working on businesses that you think are, have a really big impact, a positive impact on the world or, if you're earning money another way, thinking about ways in which we, we can use that money to help society evolve and help us coexist in a better way. 
Yeah, as a whole, yeah, I think they're having a perspective as as a whole from a foundation of oneness. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, this has been a a really awesome, fascinating conversation. I'm really hoping, folks, those of you that are listening in, I'm interviewing my friend Mark Goba, wrote the book The End of Upside Down Thinking. Fascinating. I love how he's been distilling uh, through a lot of research and science and flipping things on its head a new paradigm of possibilities. So we're talking about consciousness, moving from materialism to consciousness-based paradigm. Uh, Mark, I am, you know, at the end of each interview, I usually ask this question, so I'd be curious to see what you have to say here, um, shifting gears a little bit. It, based on everything you've learned in your life and everything you've been through, your research, your life, just personal stuff, you know, just being a human being on this planet, evolving, um, if there were three key life lessons or the most important things you feel you've learned in your lifetime, um, that if you could share these three keys with the next generation to evolve the next generation's consciousness the most, so to speak, what, what would the three most important life lessons you'd like to share with the next generation or pass on to the next generation group? Well, the first one is a, a simple but very profound quote from a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Erwin Schrodinger. He said, and that many of the quantum physicists came to realize this, quant this consciousness-based reality when you look at the very small scales of physics. But what he said was, in truth, there is only one mind. Mm -hmm. So that idea alone, that we are part of this one stream of consciousness, even though we have apparent divisions or separations between us because we're these whirlpools, so to speak, having that perspective that we're connected really can shift one's compass and one's uh, priorities. So I would say that's one thing that's really important. Another is to remember how limited our perceptual systems are. So for example, our eyes, we know from mainstream science that there are tons of, of wavelengths of light that our eyes cannot pick up. So we're not actively perceiving much of the world around us. We only see a limited sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. And yet we base our view of reality often, or we're at least biased in that way, based on what we can see or based on what we can hear. Just to remember that we are experiencing a limited sliver of reality is, is just important. Um, so that's number two. And I think number three is the notion of humility. And when I say humility in this case, I mean the humility to acknowledge how little we know and how little we wow. could know. That, that to me leaves an openness to so much. Um, we've seen throughout history, like around the turn of the century, for example, around 1900, um, there were scientists who said that all is left to be discovered in, in science is decimal points. Like basically we had gotten most of the way there and, and we just had to fill in the last few details. Uh, another quote of the scientist, Lord Kelvin, who said that uh, basically all of reality had been figured out in physics except for two uh, small anomalies. And turns out those anomalies turned into relativity theory, which is Einstein, and quantum theory, which relativity and, and quantum theory uh, basically govern physics now. And those at one point were just considered to be these two little clouds, two anomalies. Mm. I think there is a tendency for us to, as a society, to think that we know more than we do. And that knowledge is coming from 
this vehicle of a body, which, as I mentioned, can only perceive a sliver of reality, to remember that there's maybe things that we can't even compute with our brain. I mean, there's so much that a computer can do that our brain can't. So we, I think one has to remain open to many possibilities that might seem uh, like they can't make sense based on our logical mind. And yet science shows us over and over again that things that seem to be completely crazy, like germ theory, the notion that microscopic organisms could make you sick or kill you, like bacteria, that was considered to be a crazy idea until the advent of the microscope. And then all of a sudden we could see them. And then that was regarded as commonplace. So to remain open and humble as to what we know and can't know is, I think, important in every area of life. I love it. I love it. Humility. I think it's so important when we can definitely be open, open to new possibilities. Uh, Mark, I'd love for you to assign a specific homework. It's a simple, like one simple homework assignment that those listening in, can immediately go do or apply or practice right now, like literally stop this interview, do this thing. What would one, one thing, what would this one homework assignment be? There's a practice that I have, and you were kind of alluding to it as well, of, of thinking about who am I and what is it that is experiencing your life right now. You can do that even when you're in the middle of a conversation with someone. You can do it right now as you're listening. What is it that is experiencing your body and your mind? And it's almost like, for me, when I, when I kind of had this paradigm shift, that experiencer, the witness of, and the experiencer of my life, is, has always been there. It's always been experiencing the life of Mark. It's like, like, like a television screen. This is a, an analogy from Rupert Spira. The television screen is always there, and there are colorings mm. of it. So if you're watching a movie, you have characters that appear on the screen, you have trees that appear on the screen, but all of that is just a coloring of the pixels. The screen, however, is there the whole time witnessing. And it's like, at least in my life, that screen was there, but I had been overlooking it. And the minute I started to question, what is it that's experiencing this life? It almost, it's like it awakened something. And then crazy synchronicity started to happen. So I think it goes back to this notion of identity. Is our identity the consciousness? that's experiencing our lives. And if it is, the more I think we align with it, the more we align with the stream of consciousness, so to speak. Things, at least in my life, have started to shift in ways that I can't explain. And people close to me who have kind of been on the journey with me have said very similar things. So the question, what is it that is, that is experiencing this life? And sitting with that question as a homework assignment. Awesome, Mark. Really, really... Beautiful question, profound question for, for you to sit with folks. Folks, I would love for you to uh, send me an email. Let me know how you enjoyed this particular interview with Mark Gober, author of The End of Upside Down Thinking. Uh, check out his book, amazing book. I'm in the midst of delving into it myself. Uh, really clear clear thoughts, clear thinking. I think you'll really enjoy it, folks. I think it's going to put a lot of things that maybe you felt intuitively or known just inside into language in a way that will, will give different parts of you uh, even more clarity and understanding. Mark, this has been an awesome interview. Thanks for just sharing your heart, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience and knowledge. What's the best way people can find out about your work? Is there a website? What, please share. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope your listeners enjoy the conversation. If your listeners are interested in, in finding out more, my website, which is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, has more information on, on me, my book, my forthcoming podcast, and anything else that I'm working on. Awesome. Folks, we'll, we'll post the, uh, Mark's website in the show notes. Check it out. Go to his website. Check out what he's up to. Definitely get his book and shoot me an email. It's been great connecting with you all in today's episode uh, with the amazing Mark Gober. Look forward to uh, connecting with you in next week's episode. Download this podcast, this episode, share it with your friends, social media. You know the deal. Uh, we want to inspire as many people to live authentically and fulfilling lives. Love now. Until next week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.